The man with a big heart brought a homeless couple into his $4 million home, but they didn't get a warm welcome. From he invited a homeless couple to move into his multi-million dollar home. It's not going over Sure too enough, well. the 911 calls started coming in. I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, Otis Taylor, our columnist, is here. Otis, your column yesterday really struck a nerve. What did you do? I wrote about Greg Dunstan and Marie McKenzie, a homeless couple I met hanging out in Jack London Square. They were just this jovial force down there, talking to people walking their dogs, people on dates, other homeless folks. I wanted to know more about their story. And they let me follow them around for a couple weeks. I wrote it, wrote about how they slept outside the doorway of a county building. And for some reason, it struck a chord with this wealthy developer who lives in Piedmont. He decided he wanted to meet them. And when he did, he said he couldn't help himself. He knew it was the right thing to invite them into his home. Well, I want to ask you about all that. This story uh, touches on so many things that are important to people in the Bay Area. And we'll do that right after this. Otis Taylor, thanks for coming in. Hey, man. Um, thanks for having me. This is kind of cool. Otis is a columnist. He focuses on the East Bay for us. Been here almost three years. Yes. And actually, it was uh, it was the work on homelessness that the Chronicle and other publications were doing that, that got you here, right? Yes. Actually, it's a story that not many people know is that uh, the SF Homeless Project in 2016, there were 80-some media organizations that participated. Well, Audrey Cooper, our editor-in-chief. And co-host. <laughs> sent out a message. <laughs> she sent out an, a message to uh, all the media organizations asking for help um, on the day for social media. I was the only one who responded. <laughs> That's right. I remember that. And and so I got a taste of how the Chronicles operation and I was hooked then. And I was like, I want to work for you. Oh, it's been awesome to have you here. This This story about Greg Dunstan and Marie McKenzie um, really blew up yesterday. Everybody's been talking about it. Can you kind of take us back to how you met them and how you uh, became aware of their story? Sure. So uh, a fellow named John Ryman, uh, he's a retired carpenter who walks his dogs every single day in Jack London Square. He reached out to me and told me, hey, man, I think you need to check this out. You write about homelessness. There's a, a couple that I've gotten to know over the last two years who have – he felt they were being harassed by security and police officers because they were homeless. Now, this couple literally just sits on these benches down there and talks to people. They're not uh, begging for money. They're not sleeping down there. Um, they are just – people out in public and he felt it was unfair and I talking to John before I met the couple he was telling me that you know how what his relationship was with them and that he had at times um, rented hotel rooms for them when the weather got cold or wet and I was like hey you know that is a neat relationship where I, I might want I'm interested in that I met them and within two or three minutes we were laughing about something and talking basketball and 
just talking about the good places to eat in, uh, around Jack London and the times of day to go when they're not busy. And it just felt like these are people that I should get to know. Yeah, so in the beginning of January, we ran your first column on them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and people were really, really interested. I think that um, a lot of people are looking at the homeless crisis in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And there's a tendency to see people uh, as that are on the street as, as something less than human. Mm-hmm. And um, it seemed like you were trying to kind of get into that a little bit. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. So what I have, since I lived in the Bay Area, I've noticed that people have this disdain for homelessness. And product of that is they have the disdain for homeless people. And I felt that someone needed to construct this narrative of who they really are. What, what do they need? How did they become homeless? Like, I think every individual story needs to be told in a way so you can see them for who they are. And this, to me, was a couple that they were victimized themselves on the street. Uh, when they told me about setting up a tent and thinking they're part of a community – and walking away and then coming back and finding their stuff being sold on 7th in downtown Oakland, it crushed me. I'm like, these are the people that we need to help immediately. Of course, all homeless people need to be helped. But these are people who immediately could be taken off the street and placed into housing and they will be able to exist without much help from there. Obviously, that there's the employment issue, but I felt that I needed to tell the story because these are people that uh, people walking by on the street need to see. You know, these are this is the face of homelessness that uh, contradicts the narrative that everyone is uh, has a mental illness or everyone is is on on drugs or everyone is trying to just scam you out of some money. But these are people that that don't do any of that. They just want to be. Yeah, but they're older. They 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 once worked. They ha- they have benefits. Mm-hmm. You write that that together though, it amounts to about twelve hundred dollars a month, and it's just not enough. Well, I mean, you can't afford an apartment twelve hundred dollars yeah. a month. Uh, you much less a room in, in Oakland. You can't get it for twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. So the article comes out, the first column. Mm-hmm. Then what happens? So I, the column ran on January third. I think it was. That by noon, Terry McGrath sent me an email and he said, um, this was a powerful piece. I'd like to meet the folks. Yeah. Who's Terry McGrath? So Terry is, uh, he's a developer. He is a real estate investor and he's got multiple projects around the Bay Area right now. Probably the most notable is the uh, 402 unit um monstrosity as some people call it going up on macarthur it's a it's a high rise and it's going to be one of the tallest buildings in oakland that's the one you can see from the freeway when you oh you can't you you can't miss it it just it envelops you if you're walking down telegraph avenue it's just rising up um yeah it's it's huge and it's um, it's going to change the skyline in, in oakland there yes there are some people who are upset about that but as as you know there's this housing crunch. There's not enough housing for people who are trying to live in Oakland. So what what happens with Terry and this couple? So in early January, I mean, I can't stress this enough that 
this didn't take long and it wasn't really complicated, at least from his perspective. Um, he connected with John. I gave him John's contact information. And then John set up a meeting uh, at um, Yaya's. It's a, a, a cafe on 2nd Street, downtown Oakland, or it's like 2nd and Alice. And uh, Terry, I got invited to, and Terry walked in there and he saw, he said, told me later that he saw their carts parked in, 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 in the corner. And it just it just broke him. He he said, "I need to help people whose whole lives are in two carts that they can't leave their stuff anywhere for fear of it being stolen." Because I got to tell you, if you leave anything out on the street, it will be taken. Hmm. That's how desperate people are right now. I mean, you you it, it's it's just you can't leave anything of value around because someone will come take it and then sell it in front of you. So Terry decides to offer them. Uh, space of this. It is property in Piedmont. And most people know Piedmont is completely uh, wrapped by by Oakland. Mm -hmm. It's one of the Bay Area's most wealthy communities. Mm -hmm. And how does this work? Uh, when, when do they move in and, and what's the arrangement? Okay. So first on January 23rd, uh, John Ryman brought Greg and Marie up to Terry's house in Piedmont. I, I, I met them there. And you know, we're sitting on these plush chairs and couches and there's just these structures, these uh, these really interesting <laughs> um, sculptures and massive paintings. I'm, I'm talking about just take up a whole wall and this glass house, uh, you know, just glass everywhere, light coming in. And you could tell already that Greg and Marie were a little bit uncomfortable about being in in a house with so much wealth around them. Sure. Now, John and I are, you know, lounging in a chair, just kicking back. And, and of course, Terry's just a laid back person. And I just remember watching Marie rub her wrist, you know, like, and, and she just seemed a, a, just a little unsure of it, but she was so happy about the unit. Um, when, by the time I got there, they had already seen it, but then she was like, I wanted, she wanted to take me downstairs and, and, and show the unit to me. And you could see that their faces, their eyes, they had this hope that they had lost in the previous year. It, it was coming back. You know, they had their own bathroom. They had their own stove. And, you know, Marie's talking about cooking. And Greg, he was excited too, but he wanted to wait until, like Terry was ready for the move in that day, but Greg wanted to wait until they got their social security checks so he could buy groceries. So they ended up moving in on February 1st, a Friday. And I remember it was uh, a cold gray day, a little drizzle. And um, I just remember them taking one of the carts, had a busted wheel, and they were happy that they weren't having to cart that around anymore. That's mm. that's what they were happy about. and uh, <clears throat> And they were happy that they were going to, be able to cook a meal and then sleep in a bed for a night in Oakland, which was, I mean, it's just the simple things that they're happy about that I feel that I take for granted. And that's why I want to tell these stories, because I think all of us do. We need to be reminded that there are people struggling every single day. Can you talk a little more about Terry's motivations because you spent a lot of time with him? Yeah. So, so. One of the things that I, I 
felt that they wanted to know was why is this wealthy person trying to help me? Why is he letting me move into this $4 million home? And what does he get out of it? He tells me nothing, but I know he gets out of it helping someone, but also making a point that here I am, this wealthy businessman, this developer, and I, if I can do it, other people can. And one telling quote for me uh, from the story was when the homeowners association called and he recalled remarking to the, to the woman who called that if you say hello to them, they'll say hello back. And that was, that's his point is that here are people who need help. I did a thing. It's okay. More people can do that. And I really do believe that. But then the part that that was expected, and that's why I wanted to follow the story for three months um, after they moved in, was how was Piedmont going to react to them? I thought that was a key component of this piece. Um, yes, this this man allowed them to move into this, this home, but how would the neighbors react to one of their neighbors just giving someone a helping hand? And that the blowback from that, or at least at the homeowner, how uh, Terry McGrath, how he feels that the the blowback is um, is really telling about the people he lives around. Some neighbors you write called police. Yes, um, several neighbors. Um, the police would not tell me how many, but they did acknowledge. Yes, neighbors have called. Um, sometimes the same neighbor has called. And sometimes people just driving through the road that Terry lives on is a connector to Park Boulevard. To uh, And so many people in Montclair also use the road. The police said that people driving past called because it's uncommon to see black people sitting on a sidewalk in Piedmont. And now, yes, Marie, who has scoliosis, sometimes smoked uh, marijuana out on the steps as they waited for the bus. No butts were left there. No ends of joints were left out there. They were conscientious every single time to take their trash with them. Um, but the complaints were that they were a health hazard and some people were um, worried about their kids, the safety of their kids. Now, Terry didn't have a problem with me and um, photographer Yoshi James following this couple around for the last couple months. But he asked that um, he not be included in anything um, that we're reporting. He was just like, I don't want myself to be part of the story. But when that neighbor called and said that many neighbors had been expressed concern, that fired him up. And he's like, I need to be a part of this because I need to make a difference to show them that it's okay to care about people who are different from you and I. Mm. Well, just on a basic level, Otis, why did you feel it was important to address this reaction in the piece the way that you did? What What is the larger issue that you saw there? Well, a larger issue for me is, is just how we see people who have less means or who are less fortunate than you and I are. Um, I feel it's, it's that part of my job is to, to, tell stories and introduce readers and, you know, my neighbors to people that they 
probably see, but they're unlikely to meet and show them that there are lives different from theirs. Not everyone has had the same experiences. Not everyone even has the same expectations in life. And it's important for us to realize that because people look different and because people have different circumstances, they are treated differently by the public and by the police. That a, a call for people sitting out on a sidewalk, for what? You know, why Why are the police having to deal with that? And in fact, Damien, it turned out that the police didn't answer a lot of these calls because they're like, we know what's going on. And it turns out the police are educating the callers about these two black people who are sitting on a sidewalk. They're sitting on a sidewalk. And while I understand that some neighbors might have been concerned about a previous break-in, but once you see people day after day after day, and you know the rumors had circulated through the neighborhood, they know where these people are staying. Why are you continuing to call the police on them? That was my point is that People might look different, but it's we don't all need to resort to fear when we see people who are different from you and I. Mm. I want to ask you about something I've been thinking about since I read your column, which is it seems that for some people, a couple moving into a $4 million home humanizes them even more than, than your earlier column, which showed them on the streets of Oakland. Uh, you're right, and I've noticed that too. That if I write about someone, say, who is going through an eviction or has had their home foreclosed on by the bank, uh, the response is, is anger and one of support. But if I write about someone who is homeless, down on our luck, suffering on the street, the tendency I have seen is that I'll get readers who respond that, well, what did they do to get there? It's their fault. It's their suffering. But if you put them in a home, then people tend to, okay, well, they have a place to live. They have a roof over their head. They don't deserve to, to lose that. But when you're on the street, it seems that you're at your lowest point, but people want to kick you down even further. And that can be kind of troubling to me. Otis, what has been the reaction so far to the piece uh, in terms of uh, McGrath's choice in terms of uh, what this uh, shows about Bay Area and homelessness. Mm-hmm. What are you hearing? Well, I'm I'm getting a lot of of folks who are who are talking about how this highlights that we can do more. You know, we don't just have to wait for the you know the stuff the ballot box, or we don't have to complain to our um, our elected officials that we can do more. Um, This is part of a trend um, I reported earlier about Safe Time Host, which is actually a nonprofit that seeks to connect homeless people to um, homeowners who have extra rooms or extra space. So this is not that uncommon in the Bay Area, but what it's uncommon is is the exclusive neighborhood allowing people to move in. Um, I've heard a lot from folks who – who have expressed surprised about it and just how, um, but that speaks to the larger issue is why can't someone who has the means, who has the money, why, why 
I don't think that should be so surprising. I think that should be the norm that someone who has the means, who has the money, who has the extra space should be helping out the person who doesn't. I think we should just do that on an altruistic level. Might be naive, but I still think it should happen. Um, the other thing that's surprising for me uh, for response was people um, pointing out that uh, McGrath uh, is, is a developer. And that he is um, – some people believe he's contributing to the rising housing costs. And um, they – there have been some people who think that um, he wants to present himself as a white savior without even knowing that he didn't want to participate mm -hmm. until his neighbors came after him. But I think overwhelming uh, overwhelming response has been – um, one of, of, of hope, I would say that here's a bright spot in this situation that doesn't seem to be changing. I mean, you know, we're waiting for the latest point in time count uh, of the homeless in Oakland. I just checked last week to see when it was going to be released because the expectation is, is that the population, the homeless population is going to grow. So I think many people, many, many people have seen this as, uh, a bright spot that if this one guy can do it, imagine what we could do if the region got together and came up with a collective approach, which is what I think it needs to happen. This needs to have a regional solution. It can't be city by city. Well, there's one homeless couple that's not homeless anymore, mm -hmm. uh, thanks to you um, and your work, and um, we really appreciate it. Powerful, powerful work. Thanks for joining us today, Otis. Hey, thanks for letting me get on the street and do what I do. This guy's my editor, or, well, one of my editors. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Otis. You've been listening to Fifth and Mission. Thank you to Otis Taylor, our columnist, for joining us. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.